So we've got an easy, e well, it's not real easy, but probably not going to do too many questions tonight. If you have a question, just throw your hand up. Um, these are usually, um, seem to be self-evident, but tonight we're going to try to do two more commandments. I'm going to try to get done with two, the, the seventh and the eighth commandment. Are y'all moving over? Look at you go. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. We may not get through both. And let, I mean, if you do have a lot of questions, we can, we can deal with those and we can just do one, but we're going to try to get through both. By now, I hope you realize that the Ten Commandments, the magnitude of what's taught in the Ten Commandments, they're not as simple as they may first appear. The implications for all the commandments that we've walked through so far, the first six that we've walked through, I mean, they're, they're wide. They spread far and wide through all areas of our life. As we've walked through each one of these commands, we've seen that it has implications for a lot of different places, a lot of different uh, things in our life, a lot of different areas. And what we're going to do is we're going to see the same thing with the seventh commandment. Anybody know what the seventh commandment is before I... Huh? Do not commit adultery. That's pretty much uh, a direct quote. That's the whole command. You shall not commit adultery. That's it. That seems pretty simple, right? Pretty straightforward. What does adultery mean? <laughs> yeah, we're not going to be answering a whole lot of questions tonight, I can see. <laughs> it means don't cheat on your spouse. But there's so much more here. So to understand all the implications, I'm going to walk you through several passages of Scripture because a lot of times we say, this is the command, you shall not commit adultery, and we might say, well, now this includes this, and it includes this, and I'm going to show you why it includes all those things, okay? So to understand the implication of all that this command says and how it's used other places in the Bible, we need to look at what all the Bible says about marriage about sexuality, and we need to look at God's design for marriage, and how the New Testament applies this commandment. And that's what we're going to do tonight. And it's vitally important, because um, just as we saw last week when we were talking about honor your father and mother, uh, that your days will be long in the land, we, we talked about the fact that the family uh, is God's design, and the family is the foundational unit of society, which is why it's the brunt of a lot of Satan's attacks all down through the centuries, attacking the family, attacking the, uh, the parents' authority over their children and the children's understanding of the parents and all of that stuff. So it's the foundational unit of society, and if that's true, and it is, marriage is the foundational bond of the family. And so marriage is instituted by God, it's designed by God, it's ordained by God, and it belongs to God. So only God has the right to define what marriage is. Only God. Not governments, not cultures, not people. Only God can define what marriage is. And marriage, because of that, marriage is easily defined for us. It is an ordinance of creation. Marriage didn't come about at the giving of the law or at Mount Sinai or even in Abraham's day. It, it came about in the very creating of the world. Back in the Genesis, we walked through Genesis. You guys were, most of y'all were here when we did that. We saw God created Adam from the dust and, and he created the animals and he named them. And it says in chapter 2, verse 18 of Genesis, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. I'll make one corresponding to him, one that's compatible to him. 
And with the first man and the first woman in creation, God performed the first marriage ceremony in the Garden of Eden. You remember talking about the first marriage ceremony way back in Genesis 2? It was when Genesis 2 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, and we talked about the fact that this is covenant-making language that's used elsewhere in David's life and in different places where he says, this, is, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. When David's men made a covenant with him, they said, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we're told in Genesis, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That is God's definition of marriage. And the reason why I say this is a wedding ceremony that God himself does, because Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, we're going to read that passage in just a little bit. He quotes this text in Genesis 2, and you remember what he says right after it? He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man... King James says, let not man make it asunder or something like that. That's how I memorize most of my verses, so that's what I remember. So Jesus says, he quotes this passage, man shall leave his father and mother, not his father and father, not his mother and mother, not his father and eight mothers. He shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. And Jesus added, therefore what God has joined together, we don't let no man separate. And that's the reason why I say this. Marriage, according to God, in this passage and in the rest of Scripture, is a lifelong union, covenant in marriage between one man and one woman. That's God's design. That is the only godly and righteous place for sexual union to take place. Now, as you move on into Abraham's life, Job and Abraham's life, and all, you start to see, you start to, I think it began with Lamech in Genesis, you start to see people take more than one wife, but it was not that way from the beginning of creation. God created them, male and female. God said, a man shall leave his father and mother, not mothers. He shall hold fast to his wife, not his wives. And then at the end of all the creation, he looked and he said, it was very good. So it was not created that way. It was not created that way. It was, I mean, you could say it was tolerated because he didn't strike them dead when they took more than one wife, but it was not God's design. And it's certainly never condoned in Scripture. God's design, the only righteous place for the sexual union to take place, which is what we're talking about, thou shalt not commit adultery, is the marriage between one man and one woman. Any place, any place that sex happens other than the marriage union between one man and one woman united in marriage is a sin against God. And it's using a gift of God for selfish and idolatrous purposes. Ooh, y'all are quiet. Now, yeah, this is it's uncomfortable for all of us. Just, just, let's just imbibe the atmosphere and be done with it. Uh, sex is not a bad thing. It's a gift of God, but it's a gift intended to be used in a specific setting. And any use of that gift outside that setting is sin, and it's a serious sin. The purpose of this marriage union in Genesis and in all through the Scripture, uh, especially though in the beginning when, when he's creating, when the, the world was first created, the purpose of this union was what? What was God's purpose for man? 
What did he tell them to do? The, the main command. Huh? That's right. Be fruitful and multiply. Why did he want them to be fruitful and multiply? Do you remember? We talked about it in Genesis 2. Fill the earth with his image. The intent was the creation would portray the image of God, man and woman, humankind. I mean, they were created in God's image and were to multiply and spread God's image over creation. And we know what happened. The fall, sin, creation fell, and all of the suffering, disease, death, all of that entered in creation. Then we have a new Adam come in perfection, Jesus Christ, and now we have the same commission, not exactly the same, but the same commission now. We are to fill the earth with His image, and now we do it by making disciples, by making disciples of the true Adam, the final Adam, the perfect Adam, who is Jesus Christ, both God and man. So God's design for the marriage was the design of one man, one woman, covenant together for life, and this was to fill the earth with His image. But it wasn't the only purpose. Later in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is talking about marriage, he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting from Genesis 2. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then he adds, he, he had been talking about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, wives submit to your husbands, those kind of things, the roles of men and women, the roles of the family in Ephesians 5. And then he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's talking about the fact that the marriage of one man, one woman was to portray Jesus Christ and his church to the world. It is a picture of Jesus' bride and the salvation that Jesus brings to His bride. I mean, no wonder God commands that the marriage covenant be protected. It shows forth His glory, His salvation, the intent of, of the creation. Uh, and so this union, not just for procreation, but it's also, you know, it's also for enjoyment. It's also for all the things to happen in, inside the confines of marriage. But it also represents Jesus Christ and His church to the world. So if you go back to the Exodus command after hearing all of the things that... It's not all the Bible says about marriage, but just a, an over, overview. To betray this union by committing adultery, to betray this union or dishonor the covenant of marriage... It's to dishonor Jesus' name. It's to show the relationship of Jesus to His church in a false way before the world. It's to make an idol of self and say, my desires, my whatever is more important than loving my neighbor as myself in this context, which means your husband or your wife exclusively, but also more than glorifying God by demonstrating truth about Jesus Christ and His church. And the reality is that any, 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 any sexual activity that, that dishonors the covenant of marriage dishonors the Son of God because it's intended, in, at least in Ephesians 5, to show forth the glory of the Son and His church. But any sexual sin also for the Christian, it also dishonors the Holy Spirit we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually moral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
dishonors the Holy Spirit. So in addition to, we all know, I mean, I don't have to go into depth about how adultery, sexual sin damages people. I mean, it damages all those involved with it for sure. So in addition to damaging ourselves and damaging all those people around us, it also dishonors God. And God takes the breach of the marriage covenant incredibly serious. He says in in Malachi chapter 2, listen to this very closely. Verse 13, he says, And this second thing you do, he's, he's basically rebuking the people. He says, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You see what's happened in verse 13? God no longer is listening to your tears or your weeping or your groaning, and He's not taking any offerings from you. Verse 14, but you say, why does He not? Why is He not listening? Why does He not hear my tears? Why does He not want to hear my groaning or accept my offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? You see what he's referencing? The two shall become one flesh. And here in Malachi, he says, and there's a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? We've already said it. Godly offspring, spreading his image. And then he says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God takes this very, very seriously. The covenant of marriage belongs to God. It glorifies God. It represents God to the world. And that is what is commanded to be protected here in the command to not commit adultery. Loving one another Loving your neighbor as yourself means that we love the wife or the husband that God has given us and we love them exclusively and sacrificially. But can married people, are they the only ones who break this command? Thou should not commit adultery? Can single people commit this, break this command? <laughs> Two people shaking their head, yes, yes. So what all does this command forbid? It just says you shall not commit adultery, and that's it. So, of course, you got marital infidelity. We got that, right? Any sexual activity that breaks the bonds of the marriage covenant. More than adultery, though. What else is fornication? fornication. Do you know why? You're right, yes. Sermon on the Mount argument is one. Yeah, that is one. We'll get to that. Okay, no more questions. I'll just tell you. I'm scared of what Cameron and Matt are going to say. <laughs> More than adultery, of course. It includes... Yes, yes. That is a good point. And that was, that was brought up several times in my reading about this this week. She said we can be adulterous toward God. Adultery is also the word that God uses over and over again for the sin of idolatry. When you leave God, you, you're, you're committing adultery against me. So not only does he take marriage, the marriage covenant seriously, but he also takes his worship seriously as well. This command includes all sexual immorality. You say, well, it doesn't say that, Jason. How do you know that? It's very interesting. I want you to look at this. 
I want you to see how the New Testament interprets this command for us. Now, look at what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. I can't read that. I'm going to have to relook up here. It says, now I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to walk through it, and I want to show you what's happening here. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, literally man-stealers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." You see what Paul is doing here? In this list of sins, basically, Paul is walking down the second table of the law. You remember what the second table of the law is? Anybody? Okay, I'll tell you. Second table, first table of the law are the commandments between me and God. You command not to have any other gods, don't have any images, don't use his name in vain keep the Sabbath holy, and the rest of the commandments are called the second table of the law, which is how we love one another and why we're still love one another. You know, honor your father and mother, don't steal, don't kill, don't, you know, don't do all those things. And so you got the first table, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You got the second table, love your neighbor as yourself, just as Jesus separated those parts of the law. He's walking down the second table. Do you see it? Look at the last part of verse 9. Those who strike their fathers and mothers, what command is that breaking? Yeah, the fifth command. Murderers, what's that one? The sixth command, yeah. And then the seventh command, which is thou shalt not commit adultery, he says the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, and then enslavers, literally man-stealers, the eighth command, thou shalt not steal, and then liars, perjurers, you shall not bear false witness. And then he sums it up with, and all the rest of the stuff, whatever's contrary to sound doctrine. So you see what he's doing? He's walking down the second table of the law. Those who break the fifth command, the sixth command, the seventh command, the eighth command. And when he says the, when he, what he uses for the seventh commandment is sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. And so as he's walking down these commands, instead of saying adultery, he uses this blanket term, sexually immoral. It's the word, the word sexually immoral is, the Greek word is pornia. It sounds pretty familiar. It's where we get the word pornography and all of those kind of things. And it includes all manner of sexual sin. The biblical pattern for sex, that's why we walk through the marriage, the biblical doctrine of marriage as we walk through the text, Biblical pattern for sex is that it's only shared in marriage between a husband and wife. So by the very nature of what the Bible teaches about marriage, things like homosexuality, prostitution, fornication, sexual violence, incest, just on and on and on, all of those sexual sins is a breach against the institution of marriage. It's a breach against what God teaches. And Paul uses, instead of saying the word adultery, which of course is included, he uses this blanket term, sexually immoral, to cover all of those things. Sexual immorality is defilement against God's good gift, using it where it is not intended to be used. So, therefore, any sexual activity outside of the union of marriage between one man one woman is sin, period. No loopholes, no exceptions. Now, the common objection today from different 
kind of sexual immorality and homosexuality in general and, and all of the different things that you see today is that Jesus never talked about half of that stuff. Never talked about homosexuality, never talked about bestiality, never talked about incest, never talked about any of those things or, or certainly the kind of thing we see today with pornography and all that kind of stuff. He did talk about lust. We'll get to that in a minute. But even that view that he didn't talk about homosexuality or all those things, all those different kinds of sexually immoral behavior, is false. Matthew chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, the one I referenced earlier. Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting the passage from Genesis chapter 2. And then Jesus adds, as he quotes this passage that they well knew in the law of Moses, says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Jesus affirmed the biblical pattern and the biblical command of marriage. As one man, one woman, leave father and mother, be joined to your wife, and the two shall become one flesh. By doing so, Jesus himself affirmed God's design, affirmed his design of marriage from the beginning of creation, which is clear about the only proper use of the gift of sex among humanity is in, that con in the confines of marriage. And so Jesus himself upheld not only the clear testimony of Scripture, as it was in that day from Moses, which they all knew, but he also upheld the biblical pattern of marriage. He upheld what God's design for marriage. So you could say, well, Jesus never said anything about you know, taking multiple wives and all of the, you know, David and everybody who took multiple. Yeah, yeah, he did. He affirmed the biblical pattern of marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the way it is from the beginning. And what therefore God has joined, not man, not government, not anything else, what God has joined together, don't separate that. So Jesus himself affirmed it. Also, just on a side note, we see in this text Jesus' view of Scripture as well. He says, have you not, look at it, have you not read, he's talking about the Scriptures, about the writings of Moses, Genesis 2, have you not read, and then he says, and the one who created them and said, have you not read what the Creator said? You see it? Have you not read what the, you see his view of Scripture as well. It's God speaking. It's God speaking. Have you not read what the one who created them said? Therefore, a man shall leave his father. You see it? Anyway, that's an interesting to me. But like we've already alluded to, like all the commands, it's not just actions that are forbidden. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Cameron said, Jesus said, you have heard it said that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This commandment, this commandment deals with the desires of our hearts as well as the actions of our body. Jesus wasn't softening the command in the New Testament. A lot of times you hear him say, well, the Old Testament's got all them laws and all that. No, Jesus is making the law worse. I mean, he's not making it worse. He's telling them the right interpretation of the law, but it makes it such a higher standard than what they were practicing. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit these things, but I'm telling you, 
If you think it, you've already done it. You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So we break this command when we lust, when we desire, when we fantasize, when we view pornography, all of those things. Matthew Henry has this great quote about this command. He said, This commandment forbids all acts of uncleanness with all those fleshly lusts which produce those acts in war against the soul and all those practices which cherish and excite those fleshly lusts as looking in the example for as looking is an example of that, in order to lust, which Christ tells us is forbidden in His commandment. You see what He's saying? Now, this is not Bible. This is Matthew Henry. But what He's saying is the commandment forbids the act. It forbids the lust that leads to the act. And it forbids the practice that leads to the lust that leads to the act. So you could say, if we take Henry's interpretation, which I think is correct, it covers the sexually immoral act, the sexually immoral thought, and everything that leads up to it. So allowing, I tell teenagers often, especially my teenagers, allowing yourself to be put into a situation of difficult temptation, you've already gone too far. You've already gone too far. As Paul tells Timothy, you flee youthful lust. You run from it. You get away as fast as you can. You don't put yourself in areas where you will be tempted. And so... He's saying, Jesus is saying, any amount of, of lust and desire of the heart is a breach of this command. So this command includes much more than what we first think when we just read, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I want to show you this, and this is very important, and you know, someone may listen to this later on and, and, and need to hear this. Like all the other commands, this one shows us our sin. It shows us not only our acts of sin, but it shows us the sinfulness of our own hearts and our own thoughts and our own minds. But it also does what the first use of the law is supposed to do. It drives us to the Savior. There is hope even for the sexually immoral. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So talks about sexually immoral, talks about homosexuality, talks about adulterers, talks about idolaters. And he says, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11 says to the Corinthians now, the most sinful church in the New Testament, and such were some of you. Not such are some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is not you anymore. You were washed from that in the gospel of Christ. You were justified from that. God has removed the punishment of that sin from your account, and God has removed the love of that sin from your heart by placing the Spirit of God there. And your life is not characterized by the practice of that sin anymore. Such were some of you, but He's washed you, He's justified you, and He's given you the Spirit of our God. So when, when thinking about this commandment, should not commit adultery, we need to see that Ultimately, at its root, all sexual sin, all sin, but especially sexual sin, it's a matter of the heart. Ultimately, it's just it's self-worship. It's idolatry. 
And the only cure for sin of the heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any questions, comments? No, Cameron. No, I don't. Okay. Yeah. No. So I don't have it on the screen. I can read it. Is it the beginning of Matthew chapter 5? No, I'm not. 5.31? So it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, is Jesus speaking, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's pretty self-explanatory. In the Bible, there are two biblical cases for divorce. It doesn't mean that divorce must happen if those things happen, but there are two biblical cases. One, we just read sexual immorality, and the other is in 1 Corinthians 7, maybe? 1 Corinthians 7, it is abandonment. If you're married to an unbeliever and, that spouse, and your spouse leaves, then you're free from the, free from the bond, it says in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, but other than that, other than that, to... To divorce is, is sin. You hear what Jesus said? He says, I'm just quoting the text, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Questions? Pretty self, self-explanatory. Anything else on adultery before we go to stealing? Praise God, we're going to stealing. Huh? Are they not forgiven? Sure, they can be forgiven. All, all sin can be forgiven. It says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'm reading straight from the text. Well, if you move over to Mark, he gets even more explicit. Yeah. What is it in Mark? What's the Sermon on the Mount in Mark? Nine. Yeah, no, it's not saying that, oh, you're condemned forever and you're separated from God. It's saying it's a sin. It's not nine. Yep. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where it is. not nine. I don't see it there. But yeah, that's clear teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. I can't get around it, and I don't want to. So, yeah. But ultimately, ultimately, I mean, I ain't going to ask for a show of hands, but... You know, I could say, how many, who, who, who's stayed pure from lust all their life? I mean, good luck. So the fact, that, the fact that something is a sin doesn't mean that you're... I mean, that's why we have the gospel. That's why we have the gospel. But that's still what it says. And I came back off from that. I mean, if 
I back off from that, I need to go sell insurance or something else. Go work at Walmart. Go do something. Because that's what it says. That's what it says. You mean read it again? But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. Too late now. I'm going to steal it. All right. Any other questions before we move on? Theft is going to be so much easier. All right. So you shall not steal. Surely this one's pretty straightforward, right? What, is, what does it mean to steal? Take some that don't belong to you. That's pretty simple. Pretty simple, right? Don't take what doesn't belong to you. Now, here's a question. Why? I mean, ultimately, God says so, so that's why enough. But why? Well, yes, because it's not yours. Do, do lions practice this commandment? Or dogs? Or chimpanzees? Huh? Of course it's not. Of course it's not given them. Why is it given to us? That's what I'm asking. It is given to us, and it is an offense against God. And He said it. That should settle it. There, we, shouldn't even, we shouldn't need to ask why, but I want to know why is stealing wrong? Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do, if you do that, then you stay, yeah. Stay right. Absolutely. I agree with you. It's a hard issue. It is a hard issue. It's you not God it is you not trusting Yeah. Those are the two reasons right there. Both of you got one of them. So, number one, Denny said, because we love our neighbor, as Jesus said to love one another, by not stealing, by not taking what is theirs because stealing destroys the lives of others. Douglas Stewart has this great quote. He said, Stealing threatens the social order and causes pain to others by undermining the ability to possess with sure access things that are useful and needful. Look at this. The food thief makes others go hungry. The work animal thief interrupts farming. The kidnapper tears apart a family. The clothing thief makes another suffer from the sun or the cold. So it's not just a matter of principle. I mean, although it is, God said it and there, that's all you need. It has a direct effect on other people's lives. It's how we love our neighbor as ourselves. Who, have you ever had anything stolen from you? Like, I mean, not just something, just something significant. It doesn't have to be significant, but you know what I mean? Something that really gave you heartburn big time. How did you feel when something was stolen from you? Yeah, like violated. That's, that's a good way to put it. Felt like, I mean, it's just a bad feeling. But the way I've explained loving your neighbor and not taking what's theirs because you do damage to them, what about like a piece of bubble gum from a grocery store? Any of y'all ever stole some bubble gum from a grocery store when you were a kid and your mama took you back to the grocery store to apologize? That's true. I didn't think about that. That's good. She said, you steal from the store, the store raises prices, everybody else has to pay more. 
But you're correct, Matt, when you said that it's also a heart issue. Stealing is also an assault on God, who is our provider. To steal means that you do not trust God's provision for you. You call into question His goodness, His power to provide for you, His wisdom in what He has provided for you. You show forth a heart that does not honor God, nor worship God rightly as your provider when you steal. So stealing denies the very nature of God, that He is in control, that He is a good Father, that He is a provider, that He gives me everything I need, that I live by every mouth that com- every mouth, every word that comes from the mouth of God. You show a heart that doesn't honor God. Stealing denies His nature, denies that, that what we receive is what He has, has given, that He's able to give what we need. That He's willing to give what we need. And if we believe, as we must, if we're Bible-believing Christians, if we believe that everything that we have, everything that is, everything that's given is a gift from God given through His hands, and He is the one that provides, to steal means you're also robbing someone else of what God has provided them. So what this act does is show forth a fundamental sinfulness of the heart that doesn't trust God, that doesn't believe God, that doesn't honor God as He is in His nature. And so once again, you see the same thing. You see an action forbidden, of course, but that action goes much deeper because it shows forth a heart that does not honor God as He commands us to be honored, and it does not love neighbor as we're commanded to love neighbor. So the physical taking of something that does not belong to you, is that the only way we break this command? No. What else breaks this command? If you desire it in your heart. Well, if you desire it in your heart, that's, yeah, coveting. We'll talk about that for sure. What about insurance fraud? Is that stealing? What about defrauding somebody? What about cheating on your taxes? That's stealing? What about if you're an hourly worker and you don't work 60 minutes but get paid for 60 minutes? What if you work at a desk and you watch YouTube videos all day long? Stealing. What if you plagiarize? Copyright violations, download movies, music, identity theft. Is, is all that included? So honestly, I, we could go on and on and on. I got about 15 more we can talk about. We might say, praise God, here's a command I've never broken. Really? Really though? Really? Yeah, no, we've broken this one too. So, I don't know if y'all know this, but I don't know, I'm getting, I'm, I'm maturing in my old age, I think. But I used to, I know y'all don't know that, but I love, <laughs> that's the next command, that's the next command. 
I like playing video games. You know, I always have. I like video games, although I'm not doing as much anymore. So maybe it's hand-eye coordination or I'm just getting older or whatever. But I like playing video games. So a while back, I was a pastor at this time at other church. And a while back, uh, PlayStation had this thing called the PSP. And it's like a little Game Boy, but it's a PlayStation. And these great games. And I used to have one. I'd be playing all the time and everything. Well, my little PSP, my PlayStation, it, it broke. And it broke not too soon after I bought it. And it, yeah, I felt the same way. It was bad. <laughs> so I, I don't remember where I bought it, but I bought it somewhere. And I took it to, I took it to Walmart and I said, I bought this here and I don't have my receipt and it don't work. Can I have another one? And they said, sure. And they gave me another one. I'm a pastor. And so there's another guy in the church, and he said, and he was a video game guy too, and we were talking, we were in church, we were Sunday morning, like before service, and we were just standing around in the chairs talking, and I said, man, I, it's a good thing I got, yeah, you got that new game, yeah, I'm going to go play it when we leave here, and all that, whatever, and I said, man, my PSP broke, and I had to take it to Walmart and get another one. He said, you buy it from Walmart? I said, no. He said, isn't that stealing? I went... Yes, yes, it's stealing. I took the stupid thing back. It's like, dang, Christian fellowship. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, it wouldn't have took a couple of, I mean, just a moment of clarity. Well, duh, yeah, that's stealing. You know, you're taking something that you didn't pay for. But at the time, it's like, but I really want it. You know, same thing happens when, you know, I used to work at a, a body shop and we would, you know, when the boss would, boss would leave, you know, he was kind of there and gone, there and gone. Boss would leave, you know, okay, we can sit down for a little while. <laughs> stealing, stealing. You know, we could talk about when the whole, <clears throat> what was that website that used to let you download music? Huh? Napster. Whatever. Download music without paying the, the, the artists, you know? And, and, and you can come up with all kind of, well, they don't really need the money. Well, they're defrauding me. If you talk about cheating on your taxes, you can say, well, the government, they probably owe me some. That they, they're taking my money. It don't make no difference. It don't make no difference. It's stealing. Because you're saying, I have to do something that is wrong. I have to do something that is not allowed by God, I have to do something that's, let's just call it what it is, sinful, because I don't believe God will protect me. I don't believe He will provide for me. I don't believe that He will give me what I need to have. I want what I have not been given, and therefore, I, since I can't afford it, and He hadn't given me the means to do it, or whatever, I'm going to reach out and take it from someone else wrong huh what'd she say what'd you say no I didn't get another one I didn't get another one I got a whole PlayStation <laughs> these commands these commands are intended they're intended remember the uses of the law that we walked through before we began the Ten Commandments first use of the law 
drive you to Christ, show you your sin, drive you to Christ. A mirror, a schoolmaster, second use of the law to govern, you know, I don't even remember the second use of the law. Third use of the law. Remember what these laws are for. And what they have done is they've been convicting. And that's what they're intended to be. So when your heart, when your soul, when your life, when your practice, when your actions, when all of these things butt up against God's law, it's easy for us to get defensive and to justify and to say, well, hang on now. You don't know the circumstances. You don't know. Understand that, well, he does, but I'm saying you don't. Me, I don't. I, you, you need to let me justify this. You need to let me. That's what the law is intended to do. It's intended to convict. It's intended to bring forth sinfulness in all of our hearts, in all of our practice, in all of our life. And it's intended to show us our hopelessness and our failures and our sin. And it's intended to drive us to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness. So one of the worst things that we can do, no matter what sin we're talking about or how we have been guilty of it or not guilty of it or what practice we're talking about, one of the worst things we can do is is continually justify our sin in the face of God's holy law because God's holy law is intended to stop the mouth from speaking, to break our hearts, and to drive us to Jesus Christ. And until that happens, there... There's no forgiveness because only Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ brings that forgiveness. Questions, comments? Let me have it. Sweet. Let's go home then. All right. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, we thank you for your law. God, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I, I love your law. I love your precepts. I love your statutes, God, they are life-giving, it says in Psalm 119. They restore my soul. God, help us to see them as restorative because they drive us to the gospel. They drive us to the place where forgiveness is found. God, help us to walk in your way. Help us to lean on the gospel and to lean on your strength as we go about our, our life serving you. God, help us to see your law and to see our sin in uh, contrast to your law. And God, help us, to, uh, help us to find our peace in Christ. Um, Lord, we do love you. We thank you, for, we thank you for all that you are. We thank you for all that you have given. And we pray, God, that you would use what we've read tonight um, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.